morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Longtime listeners of our broadcast know that each and every week, a guest and I uh, have the pleasure of unpacking the Parashah Hashavuah, the weekly Torah portion. In synagogues throughout the world, the weekly section of the Torah is offered on Monday and Thursday mornings, as well as the full Torah portion is uh, read or chanted, offered on Shabbat morning. This week, we have the pleasure of beginning the fourth book of the Torah, known in Hebrew as Bamidbar and in English as Numbers. Um, and I want to offer a brief overview of this week's parasha before I introduce our guest and uh, deal in greater depth with some of the more interesting aspects of the Torah portion. Um, in Bamidbar, the Jewish people find themselves in the Sinai Desert, and the Torah portion begins by God uh, instructing Moses to con conduct a census of the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses counts 600 and so thousand men noted as draftable age. The tribe of Levi, numbering 22,000 males, age one month and older, is counted separately. The Levites are to serve in the sanctuary. They replace the firstborn, whose number they approximated, since they were disqualified when they participated in the worshiping of the golden calf. The 273 firstborn who lacked a Levite to replace them had to pay a five-shekel ransom to redeem themselves. When the people broke camp and began restarted uh, their journey, the three Levite clans dismantled and transported the sanctuary and reassembled it at the center of the next encampment. Then they erected their own tents around it. The Kohatites, who carried the sanctuary vessels, namely the Ark and Menorah, which we've spoken about in previous episodes, in their specifically specially designed coverings, carried it on their shoulders, camped to the south of the sanctuary. The Gershonites, uh, in charge of the tapestry and roof coverings, camped to the west, and the families of Merari, who transported its walls and panels and pillars, camped to the north. Before the sanctuary's entrance to its east, were the tents of Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons. The Torah portion then concludes by speaking of the 12 tribes camped in four groups of three tribes east. To the, of each, to the east were Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. To the south, Reuben, Simeon, and God. To the west, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, and to the north, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. This formation, the Torah tells us, was kept while traveling. Each tribe had its own Nasi, prince or leader, 
and its own flag with its tribal color and emblem. With me this morning is a new guest to Jewish faith and Jewish facts, Rabbi Ed Elkin, who is the rabbi of the First Nariva Congregation in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He is a graduate of the Reform Rabbinical Seminary Hebrew Union College, and he has served as a rabbi in Canada, in Montreal, and worked there as an assistant at Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom, as a Jewish studies teacher at one of the wonderful high schools in Montreal, uh, Quebec, and as the part-time rabbi of the Reform Congregation in Kingston, Ontario. In 1996, he took a position as a Hillel rabbi in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, returning to the States, the United States, where he was born. Um, They spent four years there, and in 2000, he returned to Canada as the rabbi of the Nariva congregation and has helped that congregation in his three decades become a central focus of Jewish life in uh, Toronto, Ontario. Uh, Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So, as I indicated in our introduction, this is the first parasha, the first portion in the fourth book of the Torah. Um, Perhaps we can begin by giving our listeners a brief overview of what they can expect from the book of Numbers. For sure. Uh, Well, thanks. It's a great opportunity for me and an honor to be able to reflect on this uh, very influential and powerful uh, important book of the Torah, uh, the book of Bamidbar, or Numbers, as it's referred to in, in English. And I think the key thing in terms of the overview of the book as a whole uh, is to realize that where the, or where the book of Numbers opens is in the second year after the Israelites have left Egypt. So they left Egypt. They've been wandering around for some time. Uh, it's still quite recent that they uh, experienced the redemption from their bondage in Egypt, that they went to Mount Sinai and uh, heard the revelation, uh, that they built the portable wilderness tabernacle, uh, which um, uh, we read about the construction in Exodus and then the inauguration of the book that we just finished, the book of Leviticus, so Numbers opens there at, that, at, the, on, at the beginning of their desert wanderings. But in the middle of this book of Numbers, almost seamlessly, it's almost hard to notice. There's no big flashing sign that says 38 years later. But in the midst of this book, we actually fast forward all the way to the end of the 40-year period of desert wanderings. And we get very little information about anything that happens in those 38 intervening years. Almost everything in the book of Numbers uh, that's described, and we're going to see some really important narratives of the Torah, happens either in 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 that initial second year after Egypt or just before the wanderings conclude. We are going to see the explanation for why 
Instead of going straight into the promised land, there is a decree that they would spend those decades wandering around the desert. That's going to happen in the Book of Numbers. Many other important narratives uh, taking place during this period when they are Bamidbar, wandering around the wilderness of Sinai. Great. Thank you. It's also going to be the book that explains why uh, Moses won't enter the promised land. One of um, a key episode in the narrative uh, of um, wandering in the wilderness. Um, so thank you for that. And let's now return to the uh, introductory parasha, the first portion in the book of Bamidbar, which begins with a census. So I suppose for our listeners, it would be important to um, ask, why is there a census at this point in the story? And is it solely this census that leads to the book being called Numbers when the Hebrew uh, has a different nomenclature? Right. So, yeah, for all the really dramatic narratives that we see in the book of Numbers as a whole, the book itself does not necessarily get off to the most scintillating start unless you're a numbers person yourself. Uh, my father, my late father was an accountant, but I somehow didn't inherit the gene. And uh, I, I tend to glaze over when reading about numbers. And there are lots and lots of numbers here as uh, Parashat Bamidbar opens. Uh, our ancient scholars asked the same question, why all this emphasis on numbers here? What is the purpose of the census here? Uh, and as with almost every question about the Torah, there are different interpretations that, have that are shared. Certainly one uh, basic level interpretation, since the census is specified as being a count of men 20 years of age and up, uh, they are, um, th there's an assumption that at least one key aspect is preparation for battles to come. We know that the desert itself is going to be, is, is, is a hostile environment. Uh, the children of Israel have already encountered some hostile desert tribes. Uh, so they need to be ready. They need to be in formation. And just like in modern armies, one of the key ways to prepare for battle is to know really what, what assets do you have and to make sure that you're really on top of that. And that can be weapons, but it's also about people. And so having a good count of who is able to fight at this point, very important, both for the desert, but of course, at this point, at the, in the begin, as the book of Numbers opens, the children of Israel think that they are headed right to the promised land. Uh, they don't know that there's going to be 40 years, yet we as readers, because we've read it before, know that that's what's coming. And we're going to read about that in a couple of weeks in the incident of the spies. But for now, they think they're going right to the promised land, and for sure there are going to be battles there. So they need to know exactly how many fighting men they have. And that's a very practical response to why there would be a census here. I'll also just note, however, one other um, 
aspect of numbers that uh, many of our ancient Jewish commentators have have connected to on this material is the fact that one of the key promises that God made to our patriarchs was to do with numbers. It was that the uh, Abraham and the other patriarchs were, were promised that their descendants would be as many as the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. And so part of the whole um, premise of calling this people into being in the first place was that was that there would be many, many descendants. And so when we count, we are affirming the um, fulfillment in a certain to a certain degree anyway of God's promise. What had started out as just a very small family, Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, one person in each generation, had now become a people of approximately 600,000 just men of fighting age. Actually, I think that's once we're doing a census, I might as well say 603,550 is the count. Men 20 years of age and up, but also, so, so that would imply a camp of at least a couple of million people. That was an extraordinary number. So by offering us this count, um, you're suggesting it's the fulfillment um, in a uh, symbolic way of the promise made in Genesis 12, when God and Abraham encounter each other for the first time. It's a promise repeated uh, throughout the narrative of the Torah. But for those who remember that introductory meeting where God claim, uh, calls upon Abraham to leave his homeland, to leave all that they love, and go to the land that he will show him. And as part of that promise, as you've said, you will be as numerous as the stars in the heaven. So I suppose for the ancients reading this, it would have been an affirmation that God's promise had been fulfilled in spite of all the uh, intervening challenges. But why then do the uh, Jewish tradition call this book Bamidbar, the wilderness, but the uh, Greek tradition, which leads to the English translation, call it numbers? Well, uh, I am uh, not an expert in the, in the ancient Greek sources, but I would assume that they... Uh, it, when the Torah was initially translated into Greek and they were looking for titles, uh, they went to the subject matter of the initial chapter of the book, and that is the census, and that led to the choice of whatever the Greek word is for numbers that later got translated into English because our English titles of the books of the Torah are, are translations from the Greek. Hebrew went often goes with the first important word in the first verse of the book. So the first verse in, uh, in this parasha is, V'yadaber Hashem el Moshe b'midbar Sinai. So the, on the first day of the second month, the second year, following the exodus from the land of Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. That word wilderness is the first key word in that pasuk, in that verse, and that became the name. 
What it does for me that's exciting is to set up an interesting conversation. We who, who, who live in this culture and are heirs of both the Hebrew Bamidbar, but also through translation, the English numbers, set up an interesting conversation between wh- what is the um, kind of the dialectic of the Midbar, which is a place of wildness, of chaos, a place that's, that's open, um, perhaps a little dangerous, uh, and numbers, what we call it, what we call it in English, uh, which is all about order and definition and structure. And I think both these pieces are at play. I'm not saying in any kind of original intent, but for us as readers who come into this book, knowing both names, each one has something fruitful, I think, to offer each other and to us. So that's an interesting perception because certainly in the book of Leviticus that preceded this, and to some degree in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Torah, we have the introduction of uh, mitzvot, laws, which like numbers are very specific and are declarative. But at the same time, once the Jews leave um, Egypt, they are in the wilderness, and the wilderness um, allows them to experience many transformative events. From Sinai, the crossing of the Red Sea, um, the building of the tabernacle, uh, which we've discussed previously, which is transformative for the Israelites, who certainly coming out of Egypt had no central shrine or central locus of their worship for Adonai. Um, So that's uh, an interesting dialectic that you've noted, and perhaps our listeners can consider um, that dialectic of uh, the wilderness versus structure um, as we proceed with our conversation this morning and other um, episodes where we talk about the book of Numbers. So Numbers plays uh, a part in this. Um, but at the same time, we're told that there is a division between those who will be of military age and the Levites. So could you remind our listeners who the Levites were? Sure. So, yes, absolutely right. There's the census is of all the men other than the members of the tribe of Levi, as it's pronounced in Hebrew, the Levites, they have a separate census, which is also recorded in this week's parasha, but it's, it's separate. And those are of all the Levites from the age of one month and up. So yes, the Levites are a, what, Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. So it, they are one of the tribes, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but they were set aside to have a sacred status. And it, uh, one of the things that we read about in this week's uh, parasha is the, the transition of sacred status from the firstborn of each family in the, amongst the people of Israel to a system in which there was one tribe who were the ones who, as a whole, uh, had that sacred status, and the rest of the people of Israel, whether they were firstborn or secondborn, 
they carried on. They were farmers. They didn't have any, any special status. Some of our listeners may remember that the 10th plague in Egypt was about the um, slaughter, as it said, um, of the firstborn. Is there a uh, connection between those who were saved um, from the plague, the Israelite firstborn, and this redemption of the firstborn? Absolutely. The theme of the firstborn in various manifestations appears again and again in the Torah, but certainly that the narrative of the plagues that you just referred to is one key moment where the firstborn of the Israelites were spared. There was a plague for all the firstborn that that afflicted all the firstborn uh, in the land of Egypt. They were slain, but the firstborn of the Israelites were spared. So, so on that basis, uh, they have the firstborn of the Israelites kind of owe Hashem, oh God, a certain uh, debt of gratitude, and they would. In, in the original system, be dedicating their lives to, to, to the Lord. At some point within the Torah itself, there is this transition, and that's what, what we read about this week, from that system. And is it because of practical reasons that it just didn't seem doable to have the firstborn of each family set aside in that way? Is it Was it decided that it would be a better system just to have a tribe we know that the tribes at the Golden Calf, among the tribes, the Livi'im remained loyal. Is this a reward to them for that? It's not entirely clear, but the system shifted, and the Levites now have this sacred status. Great. So this book is about identifying numbers and identifying tribes. And we identify the tribes in the Torah portion by the number of people and with the Levites, certainly with their responsibilities. But the Torah portion says that each of the tribes shall have a banner, um, and the banner will have a color and an emblem. Is that for purposes of military organization or might we read something more uh, significant into it as we sometimes move beyond the literal level of the Torah? I'm always up for reading thing, re- reading more significant sins. So for sure, the context here in the early chapters of Numbers seems to be preparation for battle, as I said earlier. And I think that then as now, banners play a role in signifying a, a, a regiment, perhaps, or a battalion. They have their own insignia, the ways of bonding together and identifying each other. Um, but I think that if we uh, want to ascribe more significance to it, more spiritual significance, we can note that the verse says, Israelites shall camp each with his standard under the banners of their ancestral houses around the tent of meeting, We've got three levels of identity there. There's the individual encamped under their own banner, each with his standard. The verse says, under the banners, the ancestral houses. So there's the individual, there's the family, and then the tent of meeting signifies the people as a whole. And I think we today, too, have our identity as individuals. We're part of family. We're also part of a society. 
and each of those is in a dynamic with each other. Well, that's um, kind of an interesting um, challenge to the readers of Torah, because as we began our conversation, we said, this is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, and the book of Genesis is all about family. Um, And even in um, the early chapters of Exodus, it's still about family. Um, leaving the Exodus is about the transition, which is uh, manifest at Sinai into a peoplehood. Am Segula, you are a chosen, treasured people. Uh, Am Kedusha, you are a holy people. And now we're back into uh, a, a more diverse uh, organizational structure. We go from family to people, but in the family, in that structure, there's still room for families, and there's most especially room for individuals. Uh, and so I suppose the Torah is telling us we shouldn't forget that. Uh, we started as uh, a, a people of faith, individual faith, and we've moved now both to individual faith and communal faith. Uh, I guess that's one of the hallmarks of uh, our tradition. You can have both simultaneously. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think this is continually playing out. What happens when my identity as an individual conflicts with or is in tension with the claims of my family or the claims of my society? That's one of the issues that gets opened up when we transition from being one individual, Abraham, to a family, ultimately to a people. There are great things that can happen when you grow in numbers and become a people. And it also sometimes can impinge on one's own individual identity. And that tension plays itself out in various ways. We see it in the Torah and we, it's as relevant as the most recent headlines as we figure out, you know, who we are and what our obligations are today. And certainly as you serve as a congregational rabbi, that must play out um, in a significant way or be manifest um, as you try and create community, but community is uh, the amalgamation of many different personalities and individuals. Absolutely. It's, it's the everyday work, how to figure that out with wisdom, with compassion, um, uh, with integrity. Uh, that's that's the work of every rabbi of a congregation, and I'm sure leader of any community. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Ed Elkins of uh, the Nariva Congregation in uh, Toronto, Ontario. I want to thank him for helping us begin our study of the book of Numbers, or in Hebrew, Bamidbar, which uh, he's helped us uh, move into the wilderness both literally and spiritually. Um, So thank you for being our guest this morning. You can hear a recording of our conversation on CHRI 99.1 FM or as a podcast on chri.ca or on iTunes. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day. (laughs) 